This story begins off the coast of Puntland, Somalia, at the very tip of the Horn of Africa. The geology of the region means that it's blessed with the richest fishing grounds in the country. The region sits on a continental shelf where marine life is concentrated, but the waters around Puntland also happen to be an ecotone, which is where two different biological communities collide and integrate. This is where the Red Sea, Indian Ocean and Arabian Sea meet. These rich fishing grounds are attractive to both local and international fishing vessels. Bottom trawlers drag huge nets along the sea floor, but also cause serious environmental damage. And then gill netters, who leave a wall of netting that tangles and catches fish, but can also trap protected species. Now, despite a ban on trawling off the Puntland coast, it remains rampant. Illegal, unreported and unregulated fishing, or IUU fishing, is a real problem in these waters and even has connections to the illegal arms trade. So it's here that our story begins, with seven long-haul trawlers known as the Somali Seven. This is a collaborative episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy and Deep Dive Exploring Organized Crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Lindim Tongana. They were oddly and clumsily insistent that I could do whatever I wanted so long as I didn't ask or look into this set of vessels. There is a real spectrum of both licit and illicit activities and goods that get passed through these networks, so it makes it really hard to kind of unpick who's doing what and how. The largest concern probably from these use of complex company structures is that fishery operators and IE fishing vessels and their owners are able to mask who their ultimate beneficial owners are. I think it's all a matter of crimes of opportunity. I think you might see vessels that originate in Iran drop off a load of weapons and then decide, okay, let's do some fishing before we go back. Chotpatana 51, Chotpatana 55, Chot Chai Navi 35, Chai Chanachoke 8, Chai Navi 54, Chai Navi 55, and Superm Navi 21, dubbed the Somali 7. In 2017, these seven trawlers were fishing off the coast of Puntland. On board, there were 240 Cambodian and Thai crew members who'd been told they wouldn't be fishing beyond Thai waters. But they hadn't just been lied to. They were victims of horrendous conditions. Beatings, lack of medical care, death threats, unpaid wages. They were victims of human trafficking. The investigation was carried out by investigative journalist Ian Obina in his book, The Outlaw Ocean. Within several days of being within Puntland, we fell afoul of the local authorities, largely because they were oddly and clumsily insistent 
that I could do whatever I wanted so long as I didn't ask or look into this set of vessels, Thai-owned fishing vessels, trawlers, that were in Puntland at the time. And it's a sort of um, perilous thing to uh, say to an investigative reporter, (laughs) Um, uh, you know, don't look here, uh, it's going to get a spotlight shown there. So indeed, I became very interested in why they were so nervous about me looking into that, those vessels, which ultimately came to be known as the Somali Seven. And those vessels, turns out, were involved in really bad stuff. They had captive crew, close to five dozen Cambodian traffic migrant, debt bonded, some of them even kidnapped young men and boys who were on those vessels and, and had been sort of secreted away, bamboozled even and being taken from Thai waters all the way to Somali waters. And and these vessels were engaged in all sorts of other really immoral and unethical practices. So we began investigating those ships and that fell us out of favor right away with local authorities. And we ended up being told that we had to leave Puntland immediately. The fleet had been re-flagged under the Djiboutian registry in 2016, yet was owned by a prominent fishing family in Thailand called the Sangsukiam, who have, among their number, a former Thai senator. Companies affiliated with this family have long been implicated in IUU fishing practices, as well as labor and human rights abuses. It was a long process, to be honest, and, and, and one of the toughest investigations I did. I was lucky in that I had really good sources when it came to trying to piece together the ownership structure, the family that ran these seven vessels, and how they had escaped a order from the Thai government for all distant water Thai vessels to come into port so they could be inspected for human rights concerns. And it also put me in touch with key advocates in Thailand and Cambodia, most of the crew were Cambodians, who then helped me get in touch with these guys' families. And that's really when I was able to begin tapping into the guys themselves who were on the ships because four of them had paid off Somali guards to get them SIM cards and were actually in communication with their families and were sending pictures and testimonies back to Cambodia by cell phone as to what was happening to them. And once I tapped into that pipeline of information, I was able to really fill in the picture of what was going on on those ships. Those hellish conditions and abuses on the Somali 7, according to Ian's research, took place with the knowledge and complicity of both the Somali federal government and Puntland administration officials. And it was Ian's reporting that had a hand in bringing that abuse to an end. Some of those on board were able to return to shore in Puntland and were slowly repatriated to Cambodia and Thailand. At the same time, Thai authorities opened an investigation into the owners of these Somali 7 vessels over IUU practices and the use of trafficked labor. But that isn't the end of these Somali 7. It was just the beginning. Before we get into what happened next to the Somali 7, let's just take a moment to understand exactly what IUU fishing is. So my name is Austin Brush and I'm a senior analyst on the IUU fishing portfolio at C4ADS. Legal unreported and unregulated fishing is broadly defined as any 
fishing that violates fisheries laws or occurs outside of existing laws and regulations on the high seas or in areas within the national jurisdiction of a state. So more specifically, that's broken down into three different categories. First, we have illegal fishing, which includes the fishing activities of a national or foreign vessel in the waters of a state or on the high seas that are in direct violation of any laws and regulations of the authoritative body in that area. Meanwhile, unreported fishing includes activities that are not reported at all or purposely misreported to the relevant national authority or regional fishery management organization. So in that case, we can see sometimes unreported catches or landings entering the market, for example. And then finally, unregulated fishing includes fishing activities in areas or for fish docks where there are no applicable conservation or management measures in place therefore occurring kind of outside of a regulatory framework that's specifically designed to manage either that region or area of the high seas or the species that's being caught within a specific region. And in trying to understand the scale of IUU fishing, do you look at it from the perspective of the value generated from IUU fishing or the value of money lost to formal fishing? I think it's a little bit of both. So there are current estimates out there that have been used to quantify what the total value of IU fishing as a whole is. Uh, the most recent estimates I've seen have placed the value generated from IUU fishing at around $10 billion to $36.4 billion annually, which makes it the third most lucrative natural resource crime. But that cost affects different regions and different countries a little differently. Obviously, some of those countries that are most affected are developing countries in which foreign fishing vessels or larger distant water fishing nations are operating in. So I think last year there was a study by the University of British Columbia that estimated that the economic losses of IU fishing in Africa, the continent of Africa, were close to $8 billion with a range of up to 15 or 20 actually. Okay, so we now know what IUU fishing is and how much money there is in this illicit market. But what about the country of Somalia? Somalia has a really troubled history. Famine, civil war, Islamist insurgency, piracy and a fractured political landscape. Here's Dr. Catherine Petrich, a visiting assistant professor at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies in Monterey, California. Somalia as a country, you know, has dealt with just this heartbreaking level of insecurity for generations. And in part, it's because uh, the international community is really dedicated to this idea of the Westphalian state, right? That we have the centralized government with stable borders and a stable population. And it's a structure that got imposed on Somalia without the associated institutional support, right? So you've got the worst version of the Westphalian state. You've got power without accountability. You've got a throwing over of the social contracts. You have an erosion of traditional structures that were maintaining some you know, degree of stability and a lot of vulnerability to external intervention. And then you throw on major challenges like drought and famine that really need a central power to respond to those effectively. And it's kind of no wonder you end up in this cycle of instability. So I completely understand how we ended up with this constellation of, of competing state powers in Somalia and their competition with each other and sort of those dynamics, but it creates a lot of opportunities for spaces in between them for illicit and problematic actors and corruption, alternative governance groups to 
emerge, right, and, and contest for that state power. With this fractured political system of competing state power, how do people gain the right to fish in Somali waters? Why is the region susceptible to IUU fishing? And how complicit is the state in this environmental crime? Since the early 1990s, there's been no strong central government and the country has broken up into a series of smaller regional states with a very weak federal government in, in the capital of Mogadishu. This is Jay Bahadur, a researcher at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime and the author of the paper Fishy Business, Illegal Fishing in Somalia and the Capture of State Institutions. One thing is the lack of government capability. There's no, there's no Navy. The Coast Guard is extremely limited. Vessel monitoring systems, the ability to, to track maritime activity is extremely limited. Coastal radar systems are very limited. And then you have competing jurisdictions whereby, for example, regional administrations may grant licenses and permissions to, to fishing vessels, which the federal government won't recognize and vice versa. So you have a patchwork legal framework and no agreement really on, on what constitutes legal or illegal fishing. Well, there are two main protagonists in this story linked to the state. First, we have the federal government of Somalia. Now, there's the breakaway region of Somaliland and then five semi-autonomous federal member states. Our focus will be the state of Puntland. The extractive industries like oil and gas or fisheries are important parts of the economy. But the federal government and the member states repeatedly enter into separate and often conflicting contractual agreements with the foreign entities. These overlapping jurisdictions create predictable tensions and make doing business challenging. Basically, there are some rules around sharing revenue from license sales and so on. But most importantly for this story, federal member states are not permitted to issue licenses to any non-Somali vessel or company. That is the exclusive right of the federal government. So let's go back to the Somali 7, the Thai-owned fleet of fishing vessels. When we left them, the Thai authorities had opened an investigation into the owners of the vessels, and those Cambodian and Thai crew members were being repatriated. In addition to this, Djibouti, the country under which flag the vessels were registered, deregistered them. What to do now? Well, fishing vessels can do all manner of things to avoid detection. They can go dark by disabling their geolocation or automatic information signal, which means they are essentially invisible. Or they can repaint or alter the exterior of the vessel or even paint a new name on the side to evade port authorities. In this case, they were renamed and reflagged as Somalian. Here's Austin Brush. If there are challenges in one specific region of the world with a given state, they have the ability to kind of flag to a different state, change their name, all as a process of obfuscating their identity. So actually within the report, looking at Somalia's fishing sector, one of the main cases in it, the Al-Wasam fleet or the Thai 7, many of the vessels there were sold to new companies, changed their names, repainted their exteriors, and then continued to operate despite having been involved in kind of highly public infractions in the past. 
And so while these vessels were sold and change key identified other vessels, another key component of that is the lack of data on ownership in the fishing sector and the difficulty to confirm when these vessels are sold, whether they're actually being sold to different companies with different ownership or if they're just being sold to companies also linked to their former owners and just changing their names and other identifiers such as that. The Somali seven, or at least four of them, were now known as Alvesam 1, Alvesam 2, Alvesam 4 and Alvesam 5. They were given Puntland fishing licenses and enrolled under the Somali flag registry by the Federal Government's Ministry of Ports and Marine Transport. Essentially, a number of vessels under investigation were given legal cover and legitimacy by the Somali state. Now, stay with me. The operations of the Alvesam fleet were transferred to a local front company, Alvesam Fishing and Cold Storage Company. The catches they made were exported by a seafood importer in Thailand called Felix Interfood Co. Limited. That company is linked to the Sangsukiam family, the same family who were the owners of the so-called Somali 7. But unfortunately for the Alvesam fleet and for their defenders at the Federal Government of Somalia, Ministry of Fisheries and Marine Resources, the Thai authorities spotted the renamed IUU fishing vessels and rejected the importation of 46 containers. So, what to do now? Well, it's time to rename and reflag again. How do these international companies from places like Iran, Yemen, Thailand and China manage to obtain licenses? Despite the licensing agreement between the federal government and member states, the research from the GI has shown that a lot of the revenue generated goes into the pockets of local fixers and state officials. Here's Ian Urbina. These entities, these companies, be they foreign or not, were businesses that had figured out how to tap into the money to be had. So these are the fishing companies that wanted to fish in these waters, but they needed to figure out how to do it, you know, bureaucratically, safely, etc. You have to know the right players and who to pay and for what and what papers you need and all that. And some of these same security companies and fishing consultants and these sorts were adept at squeezing those market players, be they Djibouti flag registry or SSS private security firms or cold storage fishing development consultants. You know, there, there are all these different categories of stakeholders that sort of glom around the coastal boondoggle and find a way to to uh, get a piece of that money. In 2015, a DAO called MV Nasir was intercepted by an Australian naval vessel, alongside the master of the vessel, Javed Hoot, an Iranian national. The Australian forces captured anti-tank guided missiles and other weaponry reportedly destined for the Houthi rebels in Yemen. Here's Catherine Petrich. So my understanding is that there aren't a whole lot of foreign criminal networks active on the ground in Somalia, but there are many different groups that have relationships with domestic networks, right? And that they there is 
a real spectrum of both licit and illicit activities and goods that get passed through these networks. So it makes it really hard to kind of unpick who's doing what and how. So for example, in, in Jay's report, right, he talks about this intersection of illicit fishing vessels and arms trafficking, right? So those arms traffickers are not necessarily setting up their own networks within Somalia, but they're tapping into and having relationships with domestic networks. So in this way, what we would sort of call the illicit economy of all of these activities is booming, but you're not necessarily seeing narco traffickers from Latin America setting up shop, right, in Poopland. And that's what's particularly interesting about this case. Javed Hoot, who later claimed to own seven DAOs which were used for arms trafficking in Somalia, also admitted to involvement in the Somali fisheries sector. He stated that he used local fixes. He would pay per vessel for the permissions and it would all be sorted by the Somali fixer, who would even provide two armed guards on board. Many of them have relationships with the frontline government, so they'll obtain fishing licenses or, or what might be seen as by some as legitimate fishing licenses, but by the federal government as illegitimate. But in any case, they'll obtain some, some manner of fishing license permission for the vessel. Again, they'll, they'll allow the vessels to come to ports in Puntland, so whether they engage in, in, in trading for food, for fuel, charcoal. They'll provide armed guards and they'll essentially protect them from, from potential pirate attacks or other forces in the community. And in exchange, they're allowed to fish. Generally, these fishing licenses last about 45 days, which is sort of the limit of what these vessels from Iran fishing dows. And in exchange, the, the agents will receive between ten dollars and $15,000 from the vessel owners for their, for their services. According to internal documentation obtained by the GI between the 10th of September and the 18th of October 2020, the Puntland Ministry of Fishing and Marine Transport licensed 52 Iranian vessels that are engaged in jidmo, or trawling, which, as we pointed out earlier, is illegal under both Puntland and Somali law. The names of these agents were also listed and comprised of just five individuals receiving between ten dollars to $15,000 per vessel, which means the illicit money generated from this licensing scheme could run into the millions of dollars. Okay, so we've heard about Chai Chanachoke 8, one of the Somali 7, which was re-flagged and renamed Al Vesem 4. But after being spotted by Thai authorities, it was time for another name change. Step forward, the Marvan 1. But before the Marvan 1 could sail anywhere, it needed a crew. Here's Jay Bahadur. Essentially, in order to provide a crew, because the original crews of these vessels had all been trafficked seafarers from, from Thailand and Cambodia, there was a really big scandal about it. They needed a new crew. And in order to do that, they, they reached out to an illegal or unregistered fishing agent recruiter in Mombasa, in Kenya, who then provided them a number of crew members. And they flew all the way to Somalia, were transported to the very tip in the north of Somalia, and embarked on board this vessel, the Marwanwan and soon found that they, they had become indentured laborers as well, as, as, as was the case with their Thai and Cambodian predecessors. The unlicensed agency that hired the new crew members dealt with an individual named Abdul Qadir using, and get this, a Thai mobile phone number. 
Abdul Qadir provided Puntland work visas through a company called Somlink Fisheries Investment Co. based out of Oman. The Marwan One had its crew. But, as Jay said, the conditions aboard the Marwan One were alleged to be horrendous. 20-hour working days, sleeping in the open, injuries untreated, denied food for days, threatened with being locked up or shot and denied medical treatment. Another example of Somalia's slave fishing vessels. After nearly four months, the crew eventually returned to Kenya, following an intervention from the Kenyan government. Each crew member, who was promised $240 a month, left with between $400 to $500 for four months, enough to pay for the airfare home. This version of events is disputed by some link fisheries, who claimed that the Kenyan agency provided unqualified crew. But despite this, the Somlink Fisheries representative says they discharged the crew with full compensation. Considering the history of ownership of these vessels, it's interesting that Abdul Qadir, the director of Somlink Fisheries, was using a Thai mobile phone number to get a crew from an unlicensed agency. Indeed, after questioning from the GI, a Somlink Fisheries representative admitted that the Abdul Qadir family has partnered with the Sangsukiam family from Thailand in the past, the owners of the Somali 7, but that all ties had been severed. Jay Bahadur says Somlink Fisheries acted as a front company. This Somlink Fisheries company was essentially there to legitimize it as a Somali company was there to facilitate what they needed on shore, perhaps fuel, perhaps crew members, things like that. And then as, as well pro provide export paperwork to evince the claim that the, the products of these vessels were exclusively Somali in origin. And the connections don't stop there. Remember the Alvesum Fishing and Cold Storage Company? The front company which took over the fishing operations of the Somali 7 renamed the vessels and became known as the Alvesum Fleet. Well, that fleet is operated by a family out of Bosaso, Somalia. They own another company, Somlink Fisheries. These two companies, Somlink Fisheries and Alvesum Fishing and Cold Storage Company, through phone records obtained by the GI, reveal that mobile phone numbers associated with these two companies show numerous contacts with members of the Muhammad Omar Salim network, who are known arms traffickers in Somalia and Yemen. Yeah, there is. I think it's all a matter of crimes of opportunity. I think you might see vessels that originate in Iran drop off a load of weapons and then decide, okay, let's do some fishing before we go back. You also have fuel smuggling. So fuel in Iran can be obtained for a fraction of the price you can sell it in Somalia because it's subsidized. These networks are quite independent, independently operating, and I think commit various crimes of opportunity as occasions arise. So what of the Marvan One? Well, just a few months after the Kenyan crew members returned home, the vessel was publicly listed as an IUU fishing vessel by the Indian Ocean Tuna Commission, or IOTC, an act which Somlink Fisheries claim was illegal and forced this vessel to end fishing operations. Saying that, the Marvan One was spotted fishing in Puntland waters towards the end of 2020. We followed the journey of the Somali 7 and the Alvesum fleet. Ultimately, they were disrupted not by the Somalian authorities, but the Thai. 
they questioned the legitimacy of the Somali export documentation. But learning from this experience were the architects of another IUU fishing scheme, who went to the very top of the Federal Fisheries Ministry itself to ensure their export documentation looked legit. Next, we're going to look at the Northeast Fishing Company, NEFCO. On the 4th of August 2018, a trawler called the Heisimo-1 was sailing 60 miles off the coast of Djibouti when there was a reported fire. The crew members were evacuated to safety before the vessel was abandoned to its fate. It sank. Fortunately for the apparent owners of the Heisimo-1, the Northeast Fishing Company, they would be able to submit a total loss insurance claim. But strangely, the registered insurance policy holder was another company, Alkaus Overseas Trading. We'll come on to them shortly, but first, let's focus in on the Northeast Fishing Company, or NEFCO. Jay Bahadur. Yeah, NEFCO is a local fishing company based in, in Basaso, in, in Puntland. It's owned by a Somali family that began operations in the mid-19 or late 1980s. They began by buying up fish from local local fishermen and, and then exporting it abroad. So essentially operating a what's called a reefer to collect fish from, from local fishermen. They then expanded into operating four trawlers, which are in fact illegal under both Somali federal and Puntland law. Okay, so this section has a lot of company names in it, shell companies and complex corporate structures, but stay with us. There will be a link to the paper in the summary to this show, and there you'll find a helpful diagram showing all of these connections. NEFCO was founded by a man called Ise Haji Farah, otherwise known as Captain Ise. He's the director of UAE-based Al-Jubail Trading Company, who are the parent company of NEFCO. Captain Ise's younger brother is called Sire Haji Farah, thought to be a founding member partner of NEFCO. He is also a prominent Puntland politician, once holding senior positions like Minister of Finance and Minister of Planning and International Relations. In addition to this, NEFCO have significant connections with senior members of the federal government. So, we have elaborate corporate structures and shell companies, connections with senior government officials. But what has this got to do with IUU fishing? So, one thing NEFCO was able to, to do is through a, a former member of the company, who's now a federal minister in Mogadishu, they were able to, to find individuals within the fisheries ministry to essentially issue fraudulent documentation. So, documentation detailing the catches, certifying them as a product of Somalia and certifying that they had undergone health inspections, even though these vessels uh, or their catches were never you know, within thousands of miles of any regulatory authorities in, in Mogadishu. And essentially, we were able to, to establish this through leaked documentation from a source within, well, I'll just say with, <laughs> with, with knowledge of the situation, uh, who was able to provide some of the documentation and, and also some, some correspondence between key players that outlined exactly what was going on. 
NEFCO has an uncanny ability to operate either outside or just on the fringes of the law. Through its political connections, they are able to consistently obtain fishing licenses, flag registrations and those valuable export documentations through official channels. In 2014, the incoming president of Puntland, Abdiweli Muhammad Ali Gas, vowed to fight IUU fishing by foreign vessels. In March that same year, the Puntland Minister of Fisheries revoked all existing fishing licenses without exception and a three-month moratorium on new ones. Good news. But somehow, NEFCO was able to secure permissions for four trawlers flagged under the Republic of Korea, the Ixthus 7, 8 and 9 and Beak Tang 37. These vessels were operated out of Muscat, Oman, by a company called Rasa Trading Company Limited. The president of Rasa Trading Company Limited is a Korean national, Jum Bai Kim. Nefco claimed to have purchased the vessels, although it is highly likely that Kim is at least a part owner. But regardless, what we do know is that in November 2014, these vessels were renamed. They were now called Butiyalo 1, Butiyalo 2, Haisimo 1 and Haisimo 2 and had been re-registered under the Somali flag by the Federal Government's Ministry of Ports and Transport, giving them legal cover to fish within Somalia's waters. Why? Well, perhaps it was due to the fact that the South Korean government had tightened regulations on vessels flying its flag due to increased international scrutiny in countries engaged in IUU fishing practices. But the decision to grant these licenses to NEFCO was rejected by the federal government. In fact, they even reported the NEFCO vessels to the IOTC for engaging in IUU fishing in Somalia. Just one month later, the weakness of the state institutions was in full view. Here's Jay again. Yeah, so this was, I think, in um, 2015, when these vessels, Butiello and Hasimo, were two vessels operated by this, this company, NEFCO, or the Northeast Fishing Company. It was around this time, this was just after they had been reflagged as Somali vessels in order, again, to conceal the nature of their ownership and their foreign operations. But they attempted to then enter Salala port in order to transship their catch, the products they had been fishing in Somali waters. And they were denied entry to the port because the Somali government essentially wrote to the Omani authorities and told them that these were not legitimate Somali flag vessels. So they were initially denied entry to that port. But that wasn't the end of the incident. A day later, the Puntland Ministry of Fisheries sent a letter to the Omanis accusing the federal government of spreading false accusations against NEFCO and assuring them that the vessels carried valent Puntland licenses. Just a few days later, the federal government backed down and retracted its original claims. The vessels were allowed to go about their business in the Omani port. Now, firstly, it's worth pointing out that trawling is illegal under both Puntland and Somali law. But this also shows the level of influence NEFCO have within the corridors of power and the relative weakness of state institutions. A regional authority was able to override the decision of the federal government. It is likely that NEFCO are acting as a front operation for Jumbai Kim, the Korean national based in Oman, who we met earlier. 
Yes, I mean, that's the current understanding. There, there are multiple reasons we've come to this conclusion, but one of them was that when one of these vessels sank in 2018, the registered policyholder for that vessel, which received the insurance payout, was a company owned by Jumbai Kim. The operations of the vessels themselves are still crewed by Korean captains, which again points to an operation um, of, of Jumbai Kim. Essentially, the, the 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 method in which these vessels were operating hasn't changed from the time that they were flagged as, as Korean vessels to so when they reflagged as Somali vessels. And our understanding is this was simply um, essentially a front operation in order, again, to, to conceal the nature of the, their foreign ownership. An individual with knowledge of NEFCO's operations claims that Kim maintains a beneficial ownership stake in the four vessels. Indeed, catch and health certificates show that the consigner of the vessel's cargo is a company that we've come across before, Alcaos Overseas Trading LLC. So do you remember Rasa Trading Co. Limited, the original owner of the four Korean trawlers under its president, Jumbai Kim? Well, Rasa Trading is also a parallel entity to Alcaos Overseas Trading. Both are headquartered in the Al Khwair district of Muscat. Their phone numbers are identical, all under the watchful eye of the director, Jum Bai Kim. Here's Austin Brush again. One way in which companies and their owners are able to engage in IU phishing and repeatedly is by exploiting low transparency uh, within the phishing sector and specifically using complex cross-jurisdictional corporate structures to mask their links between the beneficial owners and the actual legal activities that they're funding or sponsoring. And so we see different corporate structures being used, like shell companies, friend companies, and joint ventures, to provide opportunities for distant water fishing operators to gain access to fishing quotas, vessel authorizations, as well as a number of other kind of illicit activities that are linked to the fishing sector and IEU fishing. The largest concern probably from this use of complex company structures is that fishery operators and IE fishing vessels and their owners are able to mask who their ultimate beneficial owners are, which ultimately protects them from the consequences of the illegal activities they sponsor. Kind of hampers investigations as well as successful prosecutions of violations by some of these companies because the link between the actual vessel and the activity engaged in and those that ultimately profit from it is sometimes very murky. If the NEFCO fleet does remain even partly under the ownership of Jumbai Kim, it would show that the simple action of reflagging a company's vessel is an example of how foreign private commercial interests are able to capture elements of the Somali state to further their IUU fishing aims. Here's Jay again. The idea of foreign fishing is quite emotive. I mean, there's this feeling that foreigners are there to steal Somali resources and, and fishing itself is, is a very sensitive subject. So often that these foreign operations will either obtain Somali flags, obtain Somali partners, go through Somali agents, anything they can really do to appear to be Somali operations. There's also security reasons for this, of course, because Somalia was until until fairly recently was also a hotspot for piracy. So entering into relationships with, with local Somali agents is also sometimes necessary for security, especially when you're coming close to shore and you need protection, either the sort of overall protection by association that they can offer, or in some cases, these Somali agents will even arrange for armed guards aboard your vessel to protect from pirates or other security threats. 
two-chain paperwork as well. So this paper discusses how this company mentioned NEFCO was essentially using the Somali Ministry of Fisheries as a way to obtain the paperwork it needed to export its products as Somali products. So there's really a lot of reasons why foreign operations would want to appear to be Somali or at least have very close relationships with Somali partners. Jay mentions some important points, two of which we will touch on now state complicity and corruption, and also the act that has been synonymous with Somalia, piracy. We've seen how NEFCO has connections in the highest echelons of Somali politics. Indeed, such is the company's influence that it grew beyond Puntland to the Federal Ministry of Fisheries and Marine Resources, possibly even including the ear of the minister himself. In 2019, Captain Ise moved NEFCO's export operations from Oman to Djibouti. He now used the title Managing Director of HF Trading Company FZE, a company headquartered in the Djibouti International Free Trade Zone, the largest of its kind in Africa. The company is using the port to transship their catches to a seafood importer in China. Now, to get this cargo into China, it needs to satisfy the import regulations, which includes the catch and health certifications. Basically, where have they come from and are they in a sanitary condition? But they also require legitimate certification, say from a national authority like the Federal Government of Somalia's Ministry of Fisheries and Marine Resources. Will NEFCO have no problem sorting that out? They can go straight to one of their own, the Federal State Minister of Finance, Mohamud Hayir Ibrahim. Oh, and he's also the cousin of Captain Issey and a former assistant manager of NEFCO and former general manager of the Dubai-based foodstuffs importer Makir Coast General Trading Company, who were owned by NEFCO's parent company, Al Jubail Trading Company LLC. Here's Catherine Petrich again. We think about corruption, right? I think it's its actual dictionary definition is the misuse of public good for private gain, right? And we see that happening all the way from, you know, very formal state institutions down to the street level in Somalia, with the caveat, right, that things are uneven depending on where you are. But generally speaking, state institutions are so weak and public confidence in both the institutions themselves and the associated government officials is so low. There's very little buy-in. You know, why would you give social capital or taxes to something that's effectively just robbing you? Which then, of course, creates this downward spiral of weakened institutions and opportunities for corruption. <laughs> so unfortunately, it seems as though the federal government has just enough power to personally enrich the people who rise to the top of those structures, but not enough to hold them accountable to their constituent populations. According to leaked documentation seen by the GI, NEFCA representatives, including Captain Issey, would send unsigned catch and health certificates to Ibrahim, who would in turn send them on to the Ministry of Fisheries and Marine Resources, including to Minister Abdullah Bidan Warsame. These certificates would then be signed and stamped with no actual evidence that a physical inspection had been done. Given that the vessels are in the Djibouti Free Port, it's highly unlikely. 
Alongside this, the federal government continued to support the fishing licenses awarded to NEFCO trawlers by the Puntland administration, despite, as we have mentioned before, that it is illegal under Somali and Puntland law. Here's Ian Urbana again. It's such a complicated scene. You know, th there is, on the one hand, as I read the history and have reported there, this truth that at some point leads into fiction. And that one truth is that indeed the foreign pillaging of Somali waters played quite at the outset, quite especially at the outset, a big role in driving uh, local resentment from coastal communities toward the extraction of their national resource. And that fed into an almost populist tax in the form of piracy. That's true to some degree, but quickly that truth bled into fiction or, or, or if you will, this, this sort of one thing became something else in the form of a large business, an extortionist business that in my view, at least and from the smart people I've talked to and sort of been tutored by, like the, the piracy narrative became a big business reality and no longer was this a populist tax on foreign invaders, but rather a straight up extortionist criminal enterprise that was in no way truly benefiting local fishermen or, or local communities. It was just sort of squeezing money in brutal ways from those whom it netted. I, I did sense nonetheless, whatever the facts may be, that there was a rhetoric, um, again, partially true, partially based on reality and partially not, um, on the popular level, on the ground, in Putland, about the scandal that is truthfully the presence of foreign ships taking unsustainable amounts of fish out of their waters. What often didn't get said though in that local rhetoric is the huge role that Puntland and federal Somalia officials played in the, the very corruption of that pillaging and just the sort of complicity, deep complicity by local players in Somalia in that whole racket that was to the disadvantage of average Somali citizens. to publication of the report Fishy Business, Illegal Fishing in Somalia and the Capture of State Institutions. The GTOC presented the individuals and entities named in the study with detailed accounts of the relevant findings and provided ample opportunity to review and comment thereon. Abdullahi Bidan Warsame, Ise Haji Farah, Mohamud Sheikh Abdullahi Abdirahman, Jumbai Kim, Alvesim Fishing and Cold Storage Company, and the Puntland Ministry of Fisheries and Marine Resources did not respond to the GTOX outreaches. Through a lawyer, Mohamud Hayir Ibrahim requested that the GTOX cease all contact with him. Ahmed Osman Farah declined to respond to the GTOX findings, stating that he was accountable only to the Somali government and not to foreign nationals. 
What can be done to combat IUU fishing in Somalian waters? For one last time, let's go back to Jay Bahudur, who wrote the report that this podcast is based on. One important recommendation is that the federal member states and the federal government need to sort of get on the same page. So that means that they can agree and make public for example, which vessels are flagged under the Somalia flag, which vessels are legally operating in the country. I also suggested that the Somali federal government should make any Somali-owned company that's applying for a license or for a flag registration should make its beneficial owners apparent so that it's clear when when a Somali company might be used as a, as a front or an, or an agent for, for foreign um, fishing interests. And then essentially a third recommendation is for importing countries to treat any fishing product that's either a product of trawling or a product of a license obtained from a federal member state should be treated as illegal. But essentially the overarching theme is that there needs to be a way to streamline the system from from both an internal and external point of view and essentially make it clear to foreign actors and importing countries what is considered legal and illegal under the Somali system. That's all we have time for in this episode. I'd like to thank Jay Bahadur, Catherine Petrich, Austin Brush and Ian Urbina for taking part in this podcast episode. A link to Jay's report, Fishy Business, Illegal Fishing in Somalia and the Capture of State Institutions is in the summary to this show. There is plenty of additional detail in the report to get your teeth into. You can also find a link to Ian's book, The Outlaw Ocean. Please leave a review, like and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about the GI or to find other reports, podcasts and events, head over to the GI's website, globalinitiative.net. Thank you for listening to this collaborative episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy and Deep Dive Exploring Organized Crime from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'm Lindim Tongana. Thanks for listening.